the University Innovation Alliance, which is a group of 11 public research universities from all over the country, is committed to producing 68,000 more college graduates by 2025. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time, and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired, and give you a bit of hope. This is a very special week. Um, We have a special guest, and there's a special announcement about their joining us today. So I will turn now to a short video that explains that. America's success in an increasingly competitive global economy demands that we find a way to help every student succeed. We know that talent and drive are equally distributed across our population. But high-income students are eight times more likely to get a college degree than low-income students. For the first time in U.S. history, younger adults are less well-educated than their parents. America's future needs our educational system to change. Leaders at some of America's most innovative public research universities united around this sense of urgency, knowing they would have more impact together than alone. In 2014, we formed the University Innovation Alliance and committed to produce more graduates across the socioeconomic spectrum to innovate together, transparently share our data, and hold down our costs. We set ambitious 10-year goals. The University Innovation Alliance, which is a group of 11 public research universities from all over the country, is committed to producing 68,000 more college graduates by 2025. And we got to work. Reimagining collaboration, scaling innovations from place to place, and transforming our institutions around student success. The good news, it's working. In only six years, UIA campuses have graduated 73,000 additional graduates, exceeding our original 10-year goal. Most importantly, we now graduate 36% more low-income students each year and 73% more students of color each year. And we're just getting started. Now, we're adding more innovative campuses committed to student success, teaming up to achieve even more ambitious goals, like eliminating disparity in outcomes for all students and sharing everything we've learned. Because we know when universities collaborate, Students win. So that is leading us up to today's conversation with our newest guest. I will bring him on now, but Doug, if you want to introduce. Sure. So um, it is a great pleasure to introduce uh, Freeman Rabowski, who's president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County for almost 30 years. Uh, almost, right, Freeman? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Bridget uh, just introduced them as one of the new members of UIA, and I, she'll 
can talk about her, her she can talk about that a little more, but uh, Freeman is one of the foremost advocates in higher education for equity, for equity in STEM in particular, um, and he energizes, uh, you know, to the extent this podcast is focused on, on making people feel uh, inspired and hopeful, uh, hard to imagine somebody who, who does that more in higher education than Freeman, so welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. We're so excited. This has uh, been a long time coming uh, that you would be coming and joining us. I'm going to put you center stage. So you've joined us before, but um, this is obviously a momentous day. And uh, Doug, that's the first time you got a, a chance to, to see the video, which um, I shared. I uh, did the voice work from my phone. Yeah, I think you got a new, a new career, Bridget. I'm going to wait. Right, this is going to all sorts of things. It's going to be. This is how we're going to finally, this is going to generate revenue for UIA. This is great. <laughs> Um, but President Rabowski, welcome and so excited to, to share that you're joining the Alliance. And I just wanted to start off by um, asking uh, how you think this might be of value and why you're excited to join. Sure, Bridget. You know, I've been working with you and, and Michael Crow for years and looking at what you're doing. And I always said this to you, that we are doing some of the same things. And whether it's using analytics, trying to bring in more kids of color, and, and what I have really been impressed by when I look at UI is the way that synergy builds, that you learn from each other, you're building the brand, it is a, it's inclusive of different groups, and you can just do much more when you're connected with other people. And so we are honored to be a part of this group. I was going to ask if you were surprised, but I feel like uh, I've been hinting to you that this was imminent for a very long time. I apparently I've like a I, like I would not be good in a poker game. I would definitely like my face is a tell. So, right. Um, right. and I will tell you, my colleagues will be pleased because we've been focused a lot on innovation. We are not as large as some of the other research universities, but what we know is we're producing more and more students, and particularly in STEM areas, but also in the social sciences and humanities. So we look forward to continuing to work with you. Very much so. So, Doug, do you want to dive well, in? Well, yeah. So, I'm interested in in this set of questions around kind of collaboration and institutional cooperation. You obviously are part of a of a public university system in Maryland, and that's one of that's a structure that a lot of states have, and there, and good work gets done there. But I'm interested in sort of what what you think about leading. Why you think bringing institutions together helps you as an individual leader and your institution? Sure. First of all, you're absolutely right. Working with the system makes a big difference. And during COVID, it's been really important to be working with other campuses of different types in the university system of Maryland. What I find interesting and what my colleagues and I talked about as we were discussing it with Bridget is that we, we get the opportunity to look at how universities from around the country are addressing different issues. Given the politics in our country, given the different demographics in different parts of the, of the states in different, in different parts of the country, uh, and most important, uh, these institutions in this alliance have been focused heavily on the question of innovation and ways of using data to help more students succeed. We've been doing that, but I, I, what, I, what I really like is the, the, the fact that we get a chance to compare, to see how we're doing compared to others and to see what best practices there are that we might bring, but that they can give to us to take it to the next level. One of the challenges we face in higher education is that most institutions know about what's happening on their campuses. And, and you'll hear when I go around the country, people will say, we're the best at this and we're the best at that. And I'll always say, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, we haven't heard of anyone else 
who's doing as well. Well, that doesn't mean you're the best at that. I mean, so having ways of having a platform that compares best practices and results, for example, looking at the large numbers of people you've graduated in addition to the regular ones that you had been graduating is a big deal. When you talk about getting to 70,000 more, or when you talk about the increase in the number of low-income students or students of color, and we all need opportunities to compare how we're doing to see how we can be even better. Our line at UMBC is that success is never final. Success is never final. Everyone's getting a chance of what, like to understand what it would be like to have Freeman Rabowski as your personal life coach and like in your, I feel like you need to start a podcast in the next year where it's just like a hype speech on a Monday morning that's just like Freeman, you know, setting you straight for the week ahead. <laughs> you, I will tell you, my students do that for me every day. I get, I'm getting text messages and emails and people want to talk. And there's something about the student experience that I think we should always keep with us. It's the idea of discovering that which has not been known before. The idea of not knowing where you're going, but you just have that faith, you that leap of faith. And it's that, that emphasis on the student life experience, I think, that can inspire us all. And we need not forget that. Well, I was going to ask you about in the last year, I know that there have been, um, you know, we, we've talked a bit about collaboration and obviously, you know, my sense is that universities really need to team up, especially in light of all the challenges that we're facing. Um, and I want to segue to asking you about what you think is the proudest moment that you've had as a president at UMBC this past year. I know that there's um, some, uh, a pretty important role that a UMBC graduate played in what we're facing yes. right now. Yes, I, I, I laugh with my students and I say I put my graduate's name uh, across my forehead. Her name is Dr. Kismikia Corbett, and she is the first black woman to create a vaccine. She and Dr. Graham would led the team at NIH to, to create that technology, that mRNA. And uh, she's from rural North Carolina, came to UMBC um, as a Milehouse scholar and then went on to her back to her home state to Chapel Hill, got a Ph.D. Uh, and then postdoc at NIH. But she has literally invented the vaccine. This is, and she's being just uh, all over the world. People are talking about Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, a young woman in her 30s, African American. Uh, it's something we've never thought about, not just at UMBC, but in the world. And so we think we've done something that's not only created history, but will inspire other little girls and young women to do this kind of thing. And, and uh, I want to, I promised my colleagues, I would give you this umbc.edu slash ripple effect, umbc.edu slash ripple effect. That was an ad in the New York Times. It's about the Meyerhoff Scholars Program. We now are the largest producer, not only of blacks who get MD, PhDs, but we're the largest producer in the country of African-Americans who go on uh, and get a PhD in any of the STEM areas. And so we are very proud of that, of producing not just black students, but students across the races. And that's that's the message of UMBC, that we take in students from all kinds of backgrounds, from all races, from all over the world, and we are producing excellence, not just in STEM, but in the other disciplines. That's what I'm proud of. How much, um, how are you thinking about sort of the, the role of equity in higher education these days? We've seen, not surprisingly, it happens in every every time something goes wrong, we see underrepresented populations disproportionately affected. And I'm curious whether you think the sort of push for equity in higher education has been set back by the pandemic and, and sort of how you in, how you in view the sort of landscape for that now and what you think can drive things forward. 
You know, I, my colleagues and I wrote a book right before the pandemic entitled The Empowered University. And we're writing another one right now with Hopkins Press on what's happened during this period. And this is what we're saying, that the pandemic has uh, been a part of a larger picture of challenges. And that includes obviously COVID-19, but it includes issues involving race and social justice broadly. It includes the economy and the difference between the haves and have nots. And this is a period when the light is shining on disparities, whether you're talking about health disparities, the academic achievement gap, the income gap. And it is a time when universities more than ever need to be focused on their campuses, not only in the research, but in the teaching and learning about how to prepare the next generation of leaders to begin closing some of these gaps. And, and the, the, the language I use is from Jim Collins when he talked about the genius of the and versus the tyranny of the all. It's not about one issue or the other. It's about how do we look at all of these issues? It's not about one group. And so whether we're talking about racism and African-Americans, or we're talking about the Latinx population, like anti-Asian or LGBTQ, there's so many groups that have been discriminated against. We have to find ways of supporting each of those groups. And when talking about first-generation college students and low-income students, uh, we can't leave any of those out of the conversation. You have positioned UMBC as a, really a global leader, and I know that um, Meyerhoff Scholars Program has scaled to other institutions. You've, uh, you're frequently tapped as the iconic, one of the most iconic leaders in higher ed. And, but I'm more curious about <clears throat> when you first get to M UMBC and you, you're, you're a baby president, what do you think were the most important decisions that really helped set you up to steer this institution in this direction? Sure. Um, because I feel like people see the after yeah. and they're struggling with you know, the first step. And I'm just wondering, was there something you did or you saw that you think early on really helped start that trajectory? Right. So here's the most important thing I can say. It's the first sentence in our, this book that's out now, The Empowered University. And it says, it's, it's not about me. It's about us. If there's one thing that I want to say and that my colleagues and I agree on is when we think about leadership, we have to get beyond the one person. We have to think collaboratively. We have to think about what groups can do. And the first thing that we did, first of all, I moved to UMBC as a vice provost. I was responsible for the academic undergrad experience, then became executive VP and then the president. I've been a provost at another campus, an academic vice president at another campus. But here, here's the deal. It was uh, Michael Hooker who had begun the conversations, the former president of UMBC. And I was able to continue those conversations about what can we do? Who are we? That's the question that any person or any university has asked. Who are we? What, what do we do well right now? What is our vision for ourselves? What are our values? And so those first years were spent with a number of leaders talking about our aspirations, our challenges, and most important, doing what we, we say now about being empowered to look in the mirror and to be honest with ourselves. We had a number of challenges, including the fact that large numbers of students of color were not doing well, but large numbers of students in general were not doing well because many were trying to, were majoring in science and not making it. And so having those conversations, the hard conversations, the difficult talks led to our being more honest with ourselves and then looking at best practices around the country to see, okay, what can we do about these things? And, and that's when we began using everything 30 years ago from more technology in the, in the work that we did in teaching and learning to looking at ways of connecting the research and the teaching 
to finding ways of bringing more undergraduates into the labs and into research experiences, but also of finding ways of building our work in the humanities and social sciences with the communities around us, even as we talked also about science and engineering. And it was, again, genius of the and versus the tyranny of the all. And, and that, that, that collaboration and that use of that focus group approach to working with students and with faculty and staff, with alumni, and with the community there in the Baltimore area. All of that led to our shaping who we have become. That's you know, it, oh, sorry, go ahead, Bridget. Well, I just, one comment that um, before you, your question, Doug, is that I didn't realize that you had been at UMBC. I should have noticed that, and I should have known that. Um, uh, you just, I feel like you're, you know, you are UMBC. But it's interesting when I think about prolific presidents, uh, as we're going through this season where there are a lot of presidential searches happening, yeah. and I, I'm getting a sense that there is a little bit more openness to hiring internal. Um, the otherwise, in the past, I've seen a lot of trying to borrow reputation from elsewhere. But it's interesting that both you and Michael Crow, two iconic presidents, both had longstanding relationships with your institution prior, um, yeah. that you had the relationships that you knew all the players. Mike was a consultant uh, to ASU and the president before starting. And I, I just think that's an interesting um, that's that's something I didn't recognize that you had in common. And I think oh, yeah. as we're oh, thinking yeah. about presidential transitions, like that's gotta be something that if people want an iconic leader, um, that perhaps they need to know the lay of the land before they're handed all the responsibility of leading it. Well, I grew up at UMBC. I was, I moved there when I was 36. I'd already been an academic VP at a smaller institution uh, in the city, Coppin State. And I moved there to focus on the undergrad experience. And um, what I learned about students at the undergrad experience, actually helped me in thinking through what we could do at the graduate level. There was the same kinds of issues. And when you look at my TED talk, it, it says the four things we talk a lot about in science, but it's across the board. It's the high expectations, not just of our students, but of ourselves, building community. It takes researchers to pull others into that work and then rigorous evaluation. And that's what we learned during that period for undergrad and grad students in supporting faculty and bringing in more women into the sciences, for example, through the advanced program. And, and what it did was to, in the early years, was to teach me more about the culture of the university, but the university got to, to see me, the faculty got to see me. And so they, it was the head of the faculty center who came to me and said, we think you ought to think about becoming president, which was a very surprising to me. And, and so I've been at UMBC now 35 years. I was 36 when I moved there. And so I've grown up at UMBC. I really have. And it was five years after moving there that I became president. It's funny, Bridget, you, I, I don't have the data to back it up yet, but I put together our regular lists of new appointments of provosts and presidents. And I have definitely sensed, and I haven't done the, the data work because it would, frankly, I need like an extra week to do that. Um, but I, I think I have seen a lot more promotions, you know, or, or successions of internal people. I, I, I'll be interested to see if the data actually bear it out. But Freeman, I guess what it's interesting, when you started that, that uh, comment just now, you were talking about, uh, not about me, but about we. And I guess one of the, Bridget, I don't know if this has struck you, but I, if of the conversations we've done over the last few months, I've had several presidents talk about <laughs> The lack, the lack of ego to some extent, or the or the the importance of putting institution ahead of just the job. And I mean, Freeman, obviously, 
I can only imagine how many times you've been approached about leaving UMBC, but I am interested in sort of how you balance, right. obviously a lot of presidents and, and, and leaders need a certain amount of confidence to do, to be great. But I'm, I'm curious how you think of sort of the balancing act between people with confidence versus sort of putting ego first and, and how you, sure. how sure. you, how you balance that. You know, we're all products of our childhood experiences. And people who know my story know that I grew up as a little boy of color in Birmingham uh, and went to jail with Dr. King. And and it, he was the one who taught us as children that that we could be empowered to believe tomorrow can be better than today. And, and as I think about the challenges we face in American society right now, and I think about I mean, the real problems. I also think about the fact that we've, we've made some we've made some progress. I could not have even considered the possibility of being president of UMBC years ago. I mean, just it just wasn't a possibility. But but more important than that, at the same time, I remember something my grandmother said. I, I am a southerner. We tell stories. And she told me to stay on my knees. And she said, not only not only for the obvious reason about prayer, she said, but because the higher up you go, uh, the further you fall when you make a mistake. She said, but if you're on your knees, you won't fall too far. <laughs> I, want, I want you to think about that. That's about humility. That, I mean, for any president, anything could happen at a moment's notice that not doesn't have to be that person's fault and the person's out of that job. So anybody who starts thinking, I'm the king on the hill or, or queen on the hill, no, no, we are there to serve. We're there to serve. It is an honor to serve the university. And for me, it's all about education something I was taught all of my life, that the only way I could deal with a world that was racist, quite frankly, was to become as educated as possible, to speak the truth, and to fight for what's right. And, and so that's what I think most presidents do. We, we are here to fight for education for our students and to seek the truth, to seek the truth. And that requires yeah, confidence. We can do this, not I, but we can do this. But it also requires a level of humility that says, but by the grace of God, Something could happen. I mean, I feel very fortunate every day to get up and to be president of UMBC. I feel like that's uh, it's hard to follow anything up like that. That's to be, we just drop the mic and walk away at that point. <laughs> just a sense of what it's like. Uh, I'm sure to work with you on a daily basis, but every time that I get to um, have a conversation with you, just the um, the inspiration is much needed, and I, I'm sure was much needed, especially this past year, um, because I found that really presidents had to call deep on a new skill many of them might not have mastered was really about seeing like you know being more vulnerable especially yeah. you know modeling the struggle of what it was like to experience right now burnout yeah. um and then yeah. coaching people uh but it really takes a bit of uh, a bit of the pep talk and uh, i feel like you've got a corner on the market well you know what i, I i've got a corner on the market because i have so many colleagues leaders of the faculty and the staff and my student leaders who were inspiring me all the time. I mean, who were who were writing notes? You okay? Are you doing okay? Right? Or can you do this? Can you call this person? Can you give this person? They really need a, a, just a, a, some support. So it was the building of community, I believe. And this is what we're gonna say in our book. I think a lot of universities saw this. It, it, in tough times, you get the character of the person and the university. And I think for many of us in higher education, we realized as we did at UMBC that we could pull together. You know, the line that I use with the my presidential colleagues in the University System of Maryland and on my campus is, is this, keep hope alive. 
Everybody's waiting for me to say that every time at the end. Keep hope alive. And, and you especially want to say it when it looks like there is no hope, because that's the human that's the human condition that we get to those points where it looks so dark. But we have to remember we can get through this. We can move this. And so, um, yeah, I, I got that strength and, and was blessed to get it as a child from seeing the horrors of growing up in Birmingham, along with the wonderful love of my community. And it taught me that community is everything. And each of us on a campus, we are part, we are part of a community and the community gives us that strength to keep going. Well, uh, this is perfect. And uh, the last thing we wanted to do is quick end on rapid fire. So yeah. these are, uh, I want to ask you about advice, both yes. that you've given and that you've received. So what's the best advice that you personally have received that you continue to use? Yes, Walter Sondheim, who lived to be 99, said to me, uh, Freeman, live life seriously, but don't take it seriously. You see, because when you take it too seriously, it means you're taking yourself too seriously. So be able to laugh, to be able to laugh. There's something about a positive approach that makes a difference. Nobody wants gloom and doom. No, you got to You can be realistic, but you can say, hey, we can do this. So live life seriously, but don't take it seriously. That's great. Um, second is, what is the advice that you, mo I know that a lot of pre people who aspire to the presidency, who aspire to leadership, they come to you for advice and counsel. You're infamous as being the uh, ACE fellow mentor who made your ACE fellow do P90X with them. Um, in or and, and, and Doug was just telling a story about how you, you helped talk to his son, but you made him do some kind of exercise. So that's kind of your yes. thing. <laughs> but when you're when you're making people work out with you, what is yeah. the what is the advice you most consistently give people? Focus on the substance. People talk about being a president, but well, why? Why? I mean, focus on the substance. For me, it's about the teaching and learning process. It's about education making such a difference in the lives of people. So people who really want to be in leadership positions should be people who are excited about learning. I'm studying French every day. We've got to keep excitement about learning itself and seeking the truth, research more than ever. So if you want to be a president, focus on the substance. That's teaching and learning and research. Great. One last one is, uh, is there a, beyond the book, uh, the, empowered, uh, it, the Empowered University, are there any books that uh, you recommend to people most consistently who are thinking about leadership? You know, there, there, I, there are authors who come to my mind that that make such a difference. And um, believe it or not, uh, people are going to laugh when I say this, but uh, I, I go back to 19th century British lit sometimes. Uh, I go to the Harlem Renaissance with British lit. So Thackeray and Vanity Fair, I'm always, I mean, and for years, um, I have believed that literature broadly helps us understand human behavior and the human condition. And uh, for years, I have enjoyed reading um, Thackeray and, and uh, Dickens and the Bronte sisters, uh, but also um, The Invisible Man with Ralph Ellison. I, I, I don't say a book. I, I say read novels. People are always saying, why would you want to read novels? Because you learn so much about humans. You learn so about behavior. Those books teach me much more than the obvious ones on leadership. I mean, it's I mean, I over the years, I think literally, and right now I'm reading French literature. I'm reading um Simone Beauvoir, for example, and Victor Hugo, en français. And, and in French, I was gonna say in French. Wow. Yeah, yeah, in French, en français. It's very difficile. But I'm studying French with my students every day. They told me several years ago I was too old to do it, and I said, bring it on. That's the, the message today to me, you should never stop learning. It is so important. I am fascinated 
by studying another language in a serious way. I've studied languages before, but never to understand the culture and to understand more about myself. Wow. I don't think we've had a conversation like this yet, Doug. This is- I'm not, uh, I'm not worthy. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm like, wow, I'm so lazy. Um, but I do hope that for folks at home who are struggling to get through these weeks with burnout and everything else, um, that this has given you a bit of inspiration. And it's also given you an opportunity to learn a bit more about President Rowski and UMBC, who uh, we are delighted to welcome into the UIA. And we can't wait to see what we do together. So we will see everyone on Wednesday when we actually have our other uh, institutional leader who we're bringing into the UIA, uh, Chancellor Harold Martin from North Carolina a and And we're excited to have a conversation with him. So everyone, we wish you a happy uh, and inspired week. And we think that we've done a pretty good job of that. So thanks. Keep hope alive. <laughs>